Good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. I'm Justin Briley with you through till four o'clock this afternoon here at Premier Christian Radio. Whether you're listening online uh, by podcast or live this Saturday afternoon, it's great to have you with me. And I've got a really exciting programme for you today as we bring Christian and non-Christian together, as usual, here on the show called... You're unbelievable! Well, just unbelievable, actually. But um, anyway, Perry Marshall, our Christian today, we're going to be having him on the line from the States. He has a very interesting website called... Called cosmicfingerprints.com um, and we're going to be finding out why he believes DNA are the cosmic fingerprints of God on every living thing on the face of the earth. Uh, he believes DNA is a code. Codes need intelligence to create them. He says God is the intelligence that created the DNA code. Uh, very much opposed to that point of view this afternoon, Peter Harty. He's an atheist, formerly a Christian actually, but he's going to be explaining why as a scientist he doesn't believe we need to go to the intelligence of a, an intelligent mind for the creation of the DNA molecule. That's all to come on the programme that gets Christians and non-Christians talking. And uh, lots of you getting in contact with me in the past week. We've had some interesting programs of late. I'll come to some of the specific um, comments on the last couple of weeks of programming in a moment. But first of all, uh, I did put out a little um, sort of message last week that I had a lot of apologetics books of one type or another clogging up my desk space and I was willing to give them away to people who emailed in. Lots of you did email in. Um, so thank you for getting in touch. Uh, James, uh, lovely to hear from you in uh, Malvern. Um, you say you're actually uh, an agnostic now, but um, you were a Christian at one time, but you'd be interested in receiving apologetics books. I'll send some out to you. Thank you also for your show ideas as well. Um, you say that the latest show on Darwin was particularly interesting and that you've just finished reading an excellent book, The Language of God, by Francis Collins, who was the lead scientist of the Human Genome Project. He is a renowned theistic evolutionist, and I found it interesting to read his view on the subject. Um, and thanks for your kind prom uh, comments on the programme itself. Um, yes, Francis Collins, uh, someone I would love to have on the programme at some point down the line. Um, see if we can arrange that at some point. Uh, Frank as well in Ashted says he's been listening to the programme for a long time. You like the balanced views that are given and how I encourage non-Christians to put their case. For me, the programme confirms the truth in the Bible and makes the Bible more meaningful to everyday life. Some books coming your way, Frank. Uh, thanks to Andy as well who wants to aid me in my spring clean. Uh, you say, I like Unbelievable because it's challenging to me as a Christian and makes me consider things which I had taken for granted. I also like the fact you're not afraid to take on controversial subjects and that your debates are balanced. The openness of the programme is very refreshing. Um, thanks also to James Mensah. Um, part of the of Reconciliation International. You say, I'm one of your avid listeners, have tremendously enjoyed the programme. It's very instructive and has thrown godly light on some of the topical issues you've explored. I'm always looking forward to your inspirational programme every Saturday. Thank you very much, James. Brian Orton uh, runs apologetics315.com. Highly recommend that as a sort of place to get all kinds of apologetics downloads, uh, apologetics315.com. Uh, thank you for listening, Brian, and I shall certainly send you some books too. Uh, Pauli Silvola 
Uh, from Finland, a regular listener there as well. Um, the free book offer applies to you, Pauli. Sharad Yadav as well in uh, Idaho in the US. Uh, you say, I'm a pastor living in a small town in Idaho. I discovered your program while scouring the internet looking for reasonable, respectful engagement between Christians and non-Christians. In the desert of overheated exchanges to be found in both religious and sceptical circles, I found your show to be a delightful oasis. I try to read broadly and engage other other views as thoughtfully as I can so resources like these are wonderfully encouraging and yes I'm sure we can stretch to sending some books out to the good old US of A uh, Sharad so thank you very much Darlene as well from Chicago Illinois um, great to have you listening to the program I'm glad that you're finding the program's very helpful Ross closer to home in Lancashire says hey Justin I listen to your show every Saturday from Lancaster thanks to your listen back option on the premier website even when I miss a show I can still Still listen in. Your show has been an inspiration for me to search deeper into my faith, challenging what I believe and stretching my mind. As a last year sixth form student, I've decided that I will go on to study theology at university to continue this quest for knowledge. However, in the past week, I have been given an excellent opportunity to stay and work in the chaplaincy at my school next year. I see this as a great opportunity to witness to a large number of people presenting the Christian faith to pupils and staff within the school. In this role, I will have to defend and deliver the Christian faith to the inquiring minds of the next generation. Thanks for your excellent show. Thank you, Ross, for listening in. I'll send some books your way too. And finally, Annette in Harrow says, um, I'm currently at work completing the year-end accounts and I always listen to Premier at this time of the day and evening when I get home. Please send me some books because I love reading while on the train to work. Happy to do that for you, Annette. Thanks for everyone who got in touch after I put out that brief message last week. I'm sure my stock of books will be nicely thinned out by uh, sending off a few to each of those individuals. Okay, uh, someone mentioned there the option of listening back via the webpage. That's always possible at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable you can listen to well a whole massive archive now of past programs if you've missed any or there are maybe topics that you didn't know were out there which you can listen back to don't forget you can also find us on itunes you can subscribe regularly through itunes as well just type into the uh, the podcast search there unbelievable justin briley something like that it'll come up with us and uh, you can listen in regularly through your your itunes player um now, turning to the last couple of weeks of programming, there's still the Christadelphian program that we had on a few weeks ago, uh, causing feedback. Uh, again, this is from Pauli, who we heard from earlier in Finland. Um, you've got a really interesting way of looking at how it's possible for God to become incarnate as a finite human being. You give this analogy. Take a piece of paper and draw two crossing lines on it so that they form a big X that goes all over the paper from corner to corner. Now we have four areas of approximately equal size. We can think of each of these areas as representing one aspect of a mind. As we're thinking about the divine mind of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, we may think of those lines as going on infinitely. Now we can draw a circle in the middle of the paper so that it encompasses a part of each of those four areas. 
This circle represents the human consciousness of Jesus, i.e., the incarnate Jesus. So we can postulate an asymmetric relationship between these two, so that the whole of the divine mind has an immediate access to this human consciousness, which is, after all, contained within the divine mind. But the human consciousness need not have such direct access to the totality of the divine mind. This area of human consciousness can be thought of as being connected to a human body in the same way as the human mind is normally connected to a body. From the perspective of Jesus's humanity, he is limited in his mental resources in such a way that we can think of him as truly human in his mentality as well as in his physical body. However, that does not negate his omniscience, omnipotence, etc., in his divinity. Very interesting way of putting it.、Um, I'd, Don't know if that helps anyone out there.、Um, you say later on it's quite a long email, Polly, but that obviously this is a difficult theological topic, and what I present is a speculative model and needs to be evaluated in light of the Bible as well as the creeds of Orthodox Christianity.、Um, but if you want to find out more, do visit、uh, Polly's website at bukisa.com. That's b-u-k-i-s-a.com. Thank you, Polly. Sorry, I couldn't read out all of your email.、Um, Going on to last week's、uh, Darwin and God, it was the 200th anniversary, of course, of Darwin's birth. Last week,、um, we were looking at the whole subject of、uh, where Darwin's faith was with Nick Spencer, and、uh, it was、uh, Robert Stovold in the studio with me as our atheist.、Um, Nick Peters wanted to say my critique of what Robert said was that he's talking about evidence that is scientific, and then saying a loving God would not do X. Can I get any scientific evidence of that claim? Scientific evidence works great with claims of science. Philosoph- philosophical and theological evidence works with the claims of philosophy and theology. It's a mistake we often make of taking one area and pushing its standards on every other area. I would not use philosophy to do science, and I wouldn't use science to do philosophy. Although I do believe that the two interact. Thanks, Nick and Richard. Dear Justin, having listened to today's discussion and many others in the past, it's no wonder the biblical truth of origins, sin and death, salvation, and a new heaven and earth have lost their impact in the world. When those who say they believe adopt these human ideas instead of holding fast to the wisdom and understanding of God's word, I would be prepared to debate this with anyone. In capital letters, says Richard. Thank you for your email, Richard. Well, debate is what this program is all about, and we're going to be hearing in a short moment from、uh, Perry Marshall, very interesting character.、Uh, came across his website, and、uh, I urge you to look at it too. I'll be giving the details of that shortly. Looking at the DNA, is it the fingerprint of God? Can we see the design of God in our DNA? Atheist、um, Peter Harty is a scientist. He's going to be contesting that idea in a short moment. First of all, though, time for our regular check-in with John Twistleton answering another trick. Question. Frequently asked questions with John Twistleton. If Jesus died to take away sin, why is the world just as sinful today as it was in his day? No one can really measure how the world has changed for better or worse over the last two thousand years, but it's obvious that sin is still around. Christians see the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus nonetheless as a decisive intervention against sin at the summit of history. Where's the evidence for this? It lies in changed attitudes, changed lives, and changed communities stretching down through history. Every prayer, every act of trust in God's word, every celebration of the sacraments in every age, has drawn on what Jesus achieved in that first Christian century. Life in one Latin American city suburb revolved around the rubbish dump. Poor people made a living there, sifting through the garbage, but with much infighting. 
the arrival of nuns helped build Christian community, challenging the useless competition and building trust. A trade union was formed. People got better payment for their labours. Sinful attitudes gave way to trustful collaboration. One story, but it speaks of how Jesus takes away our sins today. It's in a succession of stories that make up trade union history, not least the formation of unions in Britain a century ago through the Christian influence of the Methodist movement. Through prayer and sacrament, cleansing and renewal come right into lives and into communities. Jesus is seen again and again acting against evil, rescuing people from its destructive power when they seek him within the Christian community. The spread of evils such as social inequality, unjust trade, wars and so on are linked to the misuse of free will. A loving God is in some way bound to allow evil so as to respect this freedom. Christians misuse free will just like non-Christians. They get sick and die like anyone else. They also claim to experience a countering of destructive powers such as sin, sickness and death when they seek their Lord. The death and resurrection of Christ are found to counter the powers of evil when the risen Lord is given freedom to do so in lives opened up to him. Billions of people through the ages have seen their wrong tendencies countered by the power of Christ at work within them. In consequence, Christianity has to contest the claim that the world would be no different without Christ. Furthermore, by its exaltation of the individual and his or her potential for changing the world, Christianity has at time provided humankind with campaigners for vital reforms. People like William Wilberforce, who pioneered the abolition of slavery, and Cicely Saunders, who pioneered the hospice movement in Britain, are just two examples. If Jesus died to take away sin, why is the world just as sinful today as it was in his day? We believe history is his story, but it's hard to prove it conclusively. People bring up Northern Ireland, Bosnia and Rwanda as places where the misbehaviour of Christians seems to have made things worse for the world in recent years. These places tell terrible stories and give evidence, at the very least, that the Christianity in these communities hardly got into gear to rise above sectarian hatred. There are, though, individual stories from those places, like that of Gordon Wilson at Enniskillen, that show the overcoming of sinful hatred through faith in Jesus. Christians can at least point to other historical developments that tell a better tale about the good news Jesus brings. Would the apartheid regime in South Africa have fallen without the concerted effort of Christians across denominations and without the Christian generosity of spirit in men like Nelson Mandela. Archbishop Tutu once said apartheid was too strong for a divided church. It was the reconciliation of Christians by Jesus that served to reconcile that land. Would the thrall of Stalinist communism have been lifted from Eastern Europe a generation ago without the solidarity movement in Poland that owed so much to the Catholic Church and its then leader, Polish Pope John Paul II. In 2009, a black president was inaugurated in the United States. Someone who would have been part of a slave culture centuries ago, raised up to lead the whole world. There's no conclusive explanation for such a reversal, but surely the Christian witness of Dr. Martin Luther King played a part in it. There are signs that Jesus takes away the sins of the world. 
if only you've got eyes to see them. If you have any difficult questions about the Christian faith or have your own answer for the frequently asked question we looked at today, please visit www.premier.org.uk slash FAQ. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Our topic today is DNA and the origin of life. Are they the fingerprints of God? Uh, that's certainly the contention of one of my guests this afternoon. His name is Perry Marshall. Um, he's put a whole website together uh, around the idea, essentially, that science, the universe and life tell us that um, there is a designer, that there is, if you like, someone who put the stuff together that makes up you and I, the DNA that, if you like, supports every living thing in um, the known world. Uh, so so he's with me on the line from the States, um, Perry Marshall. Uh, our other guest today is atheist Peter Harty. Um, I've found Peter through the National Secular Society, but Peter, you are a, a, a PhD in computer science yourself, so uh, you, right. you will probably have a lot in common with Perry in many ways. Uh, so let's introduce you both right now. Perry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to Good have to be here. Well, great to have you with us. Um, tell us a little bit of your background because um, you have this interest in the whole area of DNA and, and, and that sort of thing, but, but you're actually a bit of a, an internet and computer guru, aren't you? Um, yeah, uh, I am known uh, in my career uh, as an author who speaks and writes on Google's advertising system, um, which is called AdWords. And uh, and so uh, so that's a that's what I would consider to be one of the most uh, Darwinian environments that humans have ever devised is you know, <laughs> showing up on a search engine. So that kind of brings an interesting angle to it. Hmm. Uh, my background is um, is that I'm an electrical engineer by education uh, and also um, in various permutations of my career. Uh, I've done a lot of work in that area. Um, I'm author of a book called Industrial Ethernet, which is an, in its second edition, uh, published by the Instrumentation Systems and Automation Society. Uh, and you can find that book on Amazon. Or I don't know if you'd be able to say it in one go, but, you know, yes. it's. Uh, I mean, you're obviously a guy who knows an awful lot about those kinds of issues. And it's interesting to me that there is, as you say this kind of link as far as you can see it between the way you look at information technology uh, as is if, if you like your your <laughs> day job and um, the way that you see something similar in the the dna code i mean but go, just going back to your own background and um, probably worth pointing out at this point that you are a christian um mm -hmm. i mean how much has that informed your point of view on this well about five or six years ago i went through a pretty serious crisis of faith Myself, uh, you know, I don't think any thinking person um, gets to believe what they believe without subjecting it to some pretty tough scrutiny. And one of the things that was uh, up in the air was this whole question of, you know, the scientific aspect of life, the origin of life, the evolution question, and all of that, and what implications does that have about God existing or not existing. Um, and at that point, I was, I was willing to uh, let the evidence 
decide, regardless of what my personal preferences uh, emotionally might be. And I had a big epiphany regarding DNA and the nature of, of digital information that kind of cemented my my view that there's no other adequate explanation other than that there there is an intelligence behind the, behind biology, um, and I'm not a biologist. I'm an engineer. Mm. I think biology is mired in a particular point of view that does not work. Um, and I think engineers have more to say about whether something's designed or not than biologists do, because mm. engineers design things for a living and have to make a living selling and servicing and manufacturing those designs. And biologists don't really design anything except experiments. And so I, you know, call me arrogant, but I think I have something to say in this debate. So well, it'll be really interesting to get your perspective and and it's certainly something you've as it were on the side been pursuing for as you say the last few years you you were involved in a long running internet sort of um discussion on the infidels um sort of a discussion board about it and uh, the, the your cosmic fingerprints website uh, also kind of contains a lot of information and and you're sharing that now with other people who are interested i know you for instance um have been engaged in talking at um willow creek church which is not far you know from where you are in chicago right and so you feel that this is something that is more to, to get out there you feel there's, there's a need for christians to be aware of the issues here yes absolutely and also in the last couple of years i've given, given a couple of talks at lucent technologies to their engineering, you know, big, huge engineering company, and, you know, I have a hundred engineers in the room, and I, I give my, if you can read this, I can prove God exists talk, and when I get to the end of it, nobody has any disagreement with the technical aspect of what I've just explained at all. Well, we um, I, I, all of the questions are theological. Interestingly mm, enough, that that's very interesting. Well, I mean, it would be interesting to to maybe get a, a brief breakdown as we get into the program of of that argument, which sounds intriguing. If you can read this, I can prove that God exists. But um, we'll come to that shortly. Peter Harty is our other guest. Um, Peter, uh, you've been with me a couple of times on Unbelievable in the past, so it's great to have you back after. Uh, about a year and a half, I think, since I last had you in. But uh, uh, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, your background is atheist, um, but also in the area of science and technology. Um, yes, well, thanks. It's, it's nice to be back here again, Justin. Um, yes, I, I was actually brought up as a, as a Catholic and trained for a couple of years to be a Catholic priest. Mm. And uh, I, I left that because uh, I, I didn't think uh, that I could maintain the discipline required of a Catholic priest, the, the celibacy and so on. And um, I asked myself a, a very simple question one day. Um, if I had never heard of Jesus Christ, if I had never heard of the miracles of him being raised from the dead, if someone just walked up to me and told me these things, would I believe them? And my answer was no. And I'd actually grown up in a very sectarian part of the world in in Glasgow in the west of Scotland. And there everyone is either a Catholic or a Protestant. Uh, Everything splits along those sectarian lines. Uh, And the moment that I lost my Christian faith, all my bigotry, all my sectarian attitudes instantly disappeared. It's the closest thing to a revelation I've ever had in my life. And from that moment, I've been an atheist. 
Now, science, to me, uh, was my other passion, as well as religion. And science was what I want, went on to do at university. Um, but it never had any connection with me as a, a, in terms of religious faith. I didn't give up my religious faith because of science. And it never occurred to me that there was any contradiction between the two. Mm. To me, it seemed perfectly possible that if God wanted to create the world through evolution and wanted to create a, a human beings through evolution, he was perfectly capable of doing that. In fact, as, as I've said on, on a previous programme here, the God who can create um, uh, human beings through natural processes is in many ways a far more powerful and far more omnipotent God than one who shows his hand uh, through the design of uh, uh, biological chemicals. Um, so uh, I don't actually see a contradiction between faith and science. Right. Uh, I think it's perfectly possible to be a, a, a fully paid-up Christian and a fa fully paid-up evolutionist. Um, I don't see any contradiction at all. Nevertheless, and, and I'm pleased to hear that because obviously just last week we were talking with a, another atheist scientist of a different bent who believes there is a, a firm contradiction between atheists. Well, there's uh, always difference faith, of opinions. Faith <laughs> but but um, nonetheless, you don't believe in the way that Perry does, obviously you don't believe as an atheist, that, that the science in fact points towards a creator God. You feel that Presumably, they're different magisterium. No, 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 I don't. Um, I, I think it's perfectly plausible that there was a, a completely natural um, uh, evolution of a self-replicating molecule. As soon as you get self-replication of any kind, something that can um, uh, absorb nutrients from its surroundings and make a copy of itself, from that point onwards, natural selection kicks in. And things get more complex, they get better, information can be added, information can be created, um, and you get all the wonderful complexity of life that we see today. Well, we're going to have a discussion on this very aspect as we continue in the programme today. Um, Perry Marshall, our guest on the line from the States, uh, believes that the fingerprints of God, as it were, are seen in the DNA that all of us carry. Uh, he says that, as far as he's concerned, it is a code, it is a language, it is designed, uh, and it is clear proof of a designer. And uh, we're going to be hearing what Pete thinks of those particular ways of looking at the DNA molecule uh, in the course of the programme. Do stay with me here on Unbelievable. As we look at DNA and the origin of life, is it the fingerprint of God? You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. You certainly are on Medium Wave in London, 1305, 1332 and 1413. Uh, across the southeast on DAB, on Freeview, uh, Sky Digital, lots of ways to listen. And perhaps you're listening via podcast or on the internet, premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable we're talking about dna is it the fingerprint of god that's the view of one of my guests perry marshall today perry um, really comes from a sort of information technology background in many ways and he says uh, as an analyst as a um, person with it with that kind of uh, technology background he can see a clearly in the, the structure and the form of dna a language, information, and that simply doesn't arise by itself, he says. And we're going to be finding out exactly what he means by that in the course of the programme. And hearing from atheist uh, scientist Peter Harty, 
will be responding. Um, Peter believes that there is a naturalistic explanation for DNA and that uh, we don't need to implicate a designer, a god, to, to, to believe that uh, this, uh, the DNA that makes up all living things uh, could come about. So we're, we're going to have a fascinating discussion in this area today. So Perry, coming back to you first of all, um, it sounds very interesting what you're suggesting, that if you can read this, <laughs> I can prove that God exists. Now, what, what, what do you mean by that? In, in it's a nutshell? audacious, isn't it? It is, yes, yes. Well, let me, let me tell you what I do mean and what I don't mean by that. Um, I do not mean formal deductive proof in the most formal sense of the word proof, like a geometry proof where you can start with a a you know a certain premise and then the next one um, a- actually it's it's an a statement of inference or induction mm-hmm. which is to say that to the extent that science can prove anything which it can't prove it can only give 100% inference that all of the evidence everything that we know about information uh, indicates that the information in DNA was designed, okay? There's no counter-evidence to support the idea that a communication system arises purely through physical means. Mm. So you're saying it's it's an inference from the best... It's the best explanation of the evidence. As far as you're concerned, it would be somehow... Um, arbitrary to, to try and suggest that this information we see in, in DNA arose spontaneously or by chance or, or in some naturalistic way? Yes, yes, because 100% of the examples of information systems that we know the origin of are all designed. For, for those like me who, who know very little actually about DNA, Perry, why, why do you call DNA an information system? In what sense is it carrying information? Okay, DNA is a, uh, like every cell in your body contains a, a string of, of three billion letters that, that are written in a four-letter alphabet, A-C-G-T, okay? It's 750 megabytes of data. It's the same amount of data that will fit on a CD-ROM, and every cell in your body has that data, okay? Mm-hmm. And that, that data is an instruction set that, that says how to build cells, how to build a body, how to build proteins, okay? And there is a process when DNA replicates where it is... Um, it is converted into amino acids, which then are translated into proteins, and that process is a communication process. It's an encoding-decoding process. So if I pick up my cell phone and I call you and you answer your cell phone and you hear my voice, my voice is encoded, it's transmitted, and it's decoded by your cell phone. So an encoding-decoding process, okay? The, the process of DNA replicating involves an encoding-decoding process, and you can look up in any basic biology book, and it will explain 
what the genetic code is and what the proteins are and what the amino acids are and how that code works. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a communication system. Um, and, and in any communication system, there is a set of rules of how the code works, um, of what symbol translates to what and then, ha- and then how that is read. Those rules are never derivable from the laws of physics. You cannot derive the, the English alphabet from the laws of physics. You cannot derive the Morse code from the laws of physics. They are arbitrary. Similarly, you cannot derive the genetic code from the laws of physics because there's no law of physics that said, well, if we were going to have life forms, then we would use a four-letter alphabet. It could just as well be a five-letter or a three-letter or a two-letter or a 26-letter alphabet, but it's a four-level it's arbitrary, but it's fixed in that instance, okay? And so it, it, it's because it's not derivable from the laws of physics, the only available explanation that matches other human experience is that a choice was made to use a four-letter alphabet, a choice was made to match certain sequences of letters to certain amino acids and certain proteins, and and that's 100% inference to design. Now, all of this kind of leads me to the point of saying, okay, well, let me get my head around this. Uh, 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 what you're saying has implications for, if you like, presumably when the DNA molecule first came to be, let's mm-hmm. say, however that happened. And, and you're saying that it, given all these parts that are needed for this DNA to encode and decode and, and the very complex process that that involves, the idea of that sort of happening in some way spontaneously or by chance just does not make sense. Well, the the idea that it happens spontaneously or by chance is an anti-scientific presupposition, okay? Because nobody's ever seen any code emerge by chance. It's never been observed in the history of science, okay? Now, it presu- to presume that it was a result of an accident or random chance, that there was no set of rules behind it, is contrary to the nature of science, which looks for systematic underlying causes. Okay? Um, Any textbook that says DNA may have or probably uh, spontaneously emerged by accident, it, you know, given billions of years and given enough time, it, it, it it was inevitable that it would happen, that is an anti scientific statement. Let's see whether Peter agrees with that. And, and I think we're not arguing in this program about evolution, as it were, post the point at which we've got the mm-hmm. DNA to start uh, some kind of evolutionary process going. That's, that's a different kind of argument. But, but this is what you might call a, a type of intelligent design argument, Peter, uh, I think you'd agree, because it's saying that, that the very thing you need to get a, a biological process like evolution going requires intelligent design right at the beginning. Um, now, now, where do you come at this from? If we imagine the the lukewarm pond or whatever it was that 
is was needed to to get that first chemical reaction going that produced some kind of self-replicating DNA or you know what what, could that have have happened spontaneously by chance as an atheist it has to have happened that way in Um, in your view presumably um, you may be surprised to hear that I agree with a great deal of what Perry has just said Um, I don't think it's possible for DNA to have spontaneously appeared Uh, DNA um, uh, builds um, cells and then cells build more DNA. They, they, they sort of cells, uh, DNA and protein both have to exist, and the chances that they both appeared and started helping each other is just absurd. Um, the current speculation, the current hypothesis, is that there was some precursor to DNA. There was some self-replicating molecule that we currently don't know. Uh, we don't know how it was created, and people are conducting lots and lots of experiments and doing lots and lots of theory to try and figure out some plausible chemical pathway that would have um, created the first self-replicating molecule. Of course, as soon as you have a self-replicating molecule, evolution kicks in, and then we get all the possible ways we could create life today. Um, now... There was quite a great deal in what Perry said there, and I need to try and remember as much of it as I can. Um, I th- l- let me see if I've got this right. I just want to paraphrase um, Perry's argument. Uh, the basic argument, if I understand it correctly, is that DNA is a code. All codes or all information transmission systems that we know of uh, were designed, uh, therefore... DNA was designed. Is that, is that roughly the, the argument, Perry? Yes, th- that is correct. Okay, well, I, I, have, a, I have a couple of problems with that. Um, uh, uh, the big one, of course, is um, the caveat that you said yourself, all information systems that we know of. All information systems that we know of are human in construction and human in design. We, we don't know the origins of DNA. So I would say that your argument doesn't apply purely on that ground to begin with. But the second thing is that um, I'm I'm not entirely comfortable with your analogy of DNA as as, as a message transmission system. I I, I can see there are elements of truth in that. Um, But I would um, uh, sort of give an alternative analogy. I see DNA more as an instruction manual. It's a set of instructions for building something for building a machine, which then can build more copies of the instruction manual. And I can can see how such a thing might arise. We've got fairly plausible chemical pathways for lots of separate components of cells. Um, Again, we have no proof, as you quite rightly pointed out. All all science can do is, is work by induction and inference. Um, and and but we have got no real way of knowing how the how, how these various components combined and started metabolizing and uh, creating copies of themselves. So we don't really know how the instruction manual first got built, and we don't really know how it managed to combine with the first set of building blocks to make new copies of the instruction manual. And it, I, I don't really. It's not really the same as as a message communication system where we know who built the code and why, and 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 they're doing it in order to transmit an exact copy of something 
to someone else in order to convey information. DNA is not like that. It's purely concerned with building the environment that will build itself. Let, let me, can, let me can just I kind ask of... a question? Yeah, go ahead. Right. Okay. Do you agree, you, you agree that, con, that DNA contains instructions, right? Yes, yes, I do. Okay. If the instructions are there, did they have to get written? Well, no, I, I don't see why they couldn't have arose naturally. Well, do you have any examples of any kind of instruction ever arising yes. naturally? Yes, DNA. You're deriving your... No, I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm saying you and I do not know the origins of DNA. Now, we, kn we know that if we investigate things on the hypothesis that there is a, a natural explanation, most of the time we learn things. We learn something new. And I, I think that is a reasonable approach to take in the case of uh, biochemical molecules. When, when we assume that things are designed, we learn things too. Well, we, we, we assume that things are designed um, uh, uh, in specific human instances. For example, in archaeology, we assume that people built the pyramids, we assume that people built the, the pottery that we find in the ground. But that's because we, 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 we see the, the, the evidence of, of, of human culture. Um, we can, we can uh, empathize with the, the people who did those things. Um, we're not dealing with a human construct here. But do you know of any example where there's instructions that got written that did not come from some kind of intelligence first. Do you know of any examples? I actually don't know of any examples that come from anything other than human beings. Right. So we could actually take your argument and make it more specific. We could say that DNA is a code. All codes were created by human beings. Therefore, DNA was created by human beings. Clearly, right, that's clearly, clearly absurd. Cl clearly, yes, exactly. <laughs> so we have... So, 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 so human, humans create, and, and in, anybody who's ever invented a language or invented a computer program or invented a uh, computer, like a programming language or something like that, is acutely aware of the choices involved in that. And then when, when you start deconstructing DNA, you find that there's layers and layers of information. There are error correction mechanisms there are redundancy mechanisms. Having written an Ethernet book, I see all of those parallels. I see something very similar to the seven-layer ISO model. I see, I, I see redundancy mechanisms, and all those things are things that humans intentionally design into communication systems. And nobody, I mean, I've been, I've been uh, putting this, this, uh, this argument out on the internet and in conversations for five years, and I've never had a single person show me an example of a code or a set of instructions that was not the result of some intelligence. So we actually have five possible conclusions about DNA. One is humans designed it, which requires, you know, time travel or some crazy thing like that. Um, eight, Aliens designed DNA, while well, that just pushes the problem back further, or DNA occurred randomly and spontaneously, but that's not a scientific explanation at all. Why not? Because it's not systematic. It's not testable. If, you, if, if, if it occurred purely by accident... If biologists can create a chemical pathway that leads to a self-replicating molecule with information in it, would, would that convince you? 
No, it proves it proves that biologists can design something. <laughs> oh, but all biologists are doing is, um, is 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 trying to replicate the conditions that existed four and a half billion years ago. Well, so far they haven't they haven't succeeded in creating a self replicating molecule. You think you think fifty years is long enough? Fifty years of biochemistry is long enough for them to have well, done it that. hasn't been. I mean, are you saying, though, essentially, um, Perry, that Peter and no one in your experience has ever come up with anything akin to DNA? So so DNA is, is singular in terms of the fact that atheists argue that it did not need a designer. Well, it's not to, an to... atheist argument. Well, is it not? I mean, in the sense that... It's a scientific argument. No, it's not. It most certainly is. No, it's not, because it's not oh, systematic, yes, it <laughs> it's not repeatable, it's not testable. But you don't know that, because we, have, we, have, we haven't deduced that pathway yet. If one day we can uh, deduce a pathway, a chemical pathway, that leads to a self-replicating molecule, then we will have a good idea of seeing how it happened. If, if Newton had sat under the tree and said the apple fell out of the tree because of a random, spontaneous event... He would not have a theory of gravity. I mean, we're not talking, he would have mysticism. We're not talking about a random spontaneous event. We're talking about a set of conditions which leads to a self-replicating molecule. Okay, so, you're, so that is a search for a systematic explanation, yeah. which, is, which is the fourth possible explanation, which is there must be some undiscovered law of physics that creates information. Um, I, I, I don't understand what you mean by that. Information is in the eye of the beholder. There's, there's no, there are lots and lots of ways of, def, of defining information. I suspect you mean information that's meaningful to humans. No, I mean, I mean in, uh, there, was, there was a paper written in 1948 called Claude Shannon called The Mathematical Theory of Communication. It's one of the most important papers. Um, it was from Bell Labs. It was one of the most important papers in the history of engineering. Mm-hmm. And it defined the parameters of communication systems, and it defined a communication system as as a encoder, a channel transmitting a code, and a decoder. That is a communication system. Mm-hmm. The existence of a communication system is not subjective because it either conforms to Shannon's criteria or it doesn't. It, so if there if there is if you can observe that something is encoded, if you can observe that the code is transmitted, and if you can observe that it's decoded or to use your terminology, if you can observe the existence of instructions and that they are being written and that they are being read, that is a communication system. It's not arbitrary. It's not subjective. It's, it's perfectly black and white. And all communication systems that anyone knows the origin of are designed. Designed by humans? Yes. Tell me one that isn't designed by humans. Don't have one. Right, so so we come back to your argument again, um, that DNA is a code, all codes are designed by humans, therefore DNA was created by humans. It's absurd. Or somebody smarter than humans. Ah, give me an example of a code that was created by some, someone smarter than humans. I don't have one. Apart from DNA, presumably. Apart from DNA. Now, <laughs> DNA is more sophisticated than anything humans have ever designed. Sure. Now, the thing is, both of you have, have only one example of a code that was not created by humans. Um, Peter, and you, it's you, DNA. It's DNA in both your cases. And, and Peter, you say, well, we will 
or it is it must be that there is a naturalistic explanation um and you're skeptical perry of them finding a naturalistic explanation you say that as far as you're concerned the evidence points to that it has to be you know going along what we know about information systems it, it has to be designed i mean well, here, here's what an honest atheist can say okay and honest if if you go to cosmicfingerprints.com slash proof you'll see this laid out it's very simple scroll halfway down the page and 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 i have explanation number four is there must be some undiscovered law of physics that creates information an honest atheist is welcome to hold to that theory. I, I don't understand what sort of physical law you're looking for. Why, why can't normal thermodynamics create, um, create, create a self-replicating molecule? Why can't that happen? Because, well, first of all, it's, it's, the, the presupposition that it can is purely a matter of faith because it's never been observed. Well, well, hold there's, on. No, there's no law of there's no known known law of physics that that creates that creates communication systems or codes. Well, no, there's no law. But you say there, why can't it happen? And I'm saying to you, why can it happen? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, what you're saying is it cannot happen. That you seem to be sort of discarding. I'm saying it's never been observed to happen, and if and and you you are outside the realm of scientific statement when you say that it could because there's no, no, no evidence no, 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 no. I, I, to support I, I, your position <laughs> i asked you why it couldn't right why could why why could the, why why could the thermodynamics not allow a self-replicating molecule why does it have to have been designed because of information entropy which is which is defined by claude shannon in his paper um which is that has the same mathematics as thermodynamic entropy. Well, hold on. Information entropy, right, is uh, entropy is the most likely uh, state of an information system. Is that correct? Ent entropy is the irreversal process of degrading information when noise is introduced. Now, the definition of entropy in Claude Shannon's paper is the most likely state of, of, of a communication signal, isn't it? The most likely state to be communicated. Is that, is that, uh, I'm, not, is that not the case? I'm not clear what. I'm not clear what you mean when you say that. Well, that's the definition given in Shannon's paper. Can you read it? I, I don't have it in front of me. I, I, I did mean to bring it actually, and <laughs> I forgot to. But I, I, I don't. I really don't see the connection. I don't see why that stops. Why? Why that in some way prevents thermodynamics from creating a, a self-replicating molecule. Well, you, you can believe that if you want. It's just that well, nobody's no, ever no, seen I, it I, I'm, I'm not stating a belief. I'm saying I don't see why it can't happen. I mean, are you saying ultimately, though, Peter, do you, do you have to admit at some level that it is a faith position that this that there is a naturalistic explanation yes, for, I admit, absolutely. for DNA? Yes, I absolutely admit that that is a faith position. Um, uh, what we're going on here is a faith in the scientific method, a faith that if you investigate something long enough and hard enough and you do enough experiments, eventually you'll find out how something works. But shouldn't you, until some definitive proof has come along... Uh, 
shouldn't you remain agnostic about well, about whether te- technically be- yes i mean i mean you can remain agnostic on a great many things i mean um, I, I remain agnostic on whether there are leprechauns at the bottom of my garden i can't prove or disprove it one way or the other i prefer to believe that there aren't um i mean in the case of um uh, the the the, the, the the pathway that leads to the first self-replicating molecule. Um, I've yet to hear an argument um, that says why it can't happen. We're going to have to take a quick break here, so we'll allow Perry to come back immediately after a short break. You're listening to Unbelievable. If you want to get in contact on this whole area of DNA, um, what do you think? Uh, Perhaps you've got some experience in this area. Perhaps you'd just like to throw your comment in, whether you're a a person with a a background in biology or or computer engineering or not. Um, DNA... Could it be the fingerprint of God? Um, Perry Marshall, who's on the phone from the States, believes it is, as it were, the the killer argument as far as the existence of God. Um, He says it's an information system. Information systems are designed. It's as simple as that. We'll be continuing this discussion in a short moment here on Unbelievable. Uh, Do get in contact, though. The email address is unbelievable at premier.org.uk and you can phone 08456 52 52 52 and select option five. Join us again in a couple of minutes. Hello, welcome back to the programme. Well, this is the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together. Next week, we'll be hearing a conversation between a Christian and a Mormon. They're both actually from the States, and they're both going to be talking to us from the uh, Mormon heartland that is Utah, Salt Lake City itself. Uh, Robert Millett is professor at Brigham Young University. He's a Mormon. He'll be speaking with Greg Johnson, who's a Baptist pastor out there in Salt Lake City and founder of Standing Together Ministries that aims to bring Mormons and Christians together in dialogue. We'll be hearing about the differences and the uh, shared ground between Mormonism and Christianity. That's at the same time next week between 2.30 and 4. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Do check out the online webpage, premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. This show going live as a podcast there um, pretty much now, actually, if if you visit the site. So um, that's the place to listen back. Send the program on to anyone else you may think may be interested. And while you're at it, why not check out cosmicfingerprints.com? That's the website of Perry Marshall. He's one of my guests on the program today. And in it, he lays out why. Uh, From the background, not of biology, but actually as an information uh, as, as a, an engineer of uh, information um, why he sees design as being very apparent in the DNA molecule and we, we, we've been talking about how Peter Harty, our atheist on the programme today believes that there could be a naturalistic explanation, we don't have to leap to this uh, deduction that it's therefore uh, designed just because other information systems are designed. Um, so, so let's come back to this right away, Perry. Um, I mean, where did you want to pick up from? Uh, after, yeah, so, yeah. so, Peter, and we're, this is a great discussion. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, Peter said, I don't see why a self-replicating information system couldn't have arised naturally. Okay? Now, that's, that's, a, that's a perfectly fine statement. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it demonstrates openness to, to investigation. Um, and, and so I want to take that apart a little bit. If we say that it could happen, then there's, there's two avenues of investigation. One avenue is that it's purely a matter of probability that 
eventually this would have happened uh, purely by accident. Now, my contention is that's not a scientific statement at all because it cannot be investigated. Now, the other route, which I think is more fruitful, is if we say the, the first self-replicating molecules or the first DNA could have arisen through some set of rules or some kind of a process, okay? Now, that is something that you can investigate, okay? That, that is a scientific inquiry. And, of course, as Peter said, there are all kinds of people conducting experiments over the last 50 years, um, test, you know, origin of life experiments, and, and, and those are fine. But what I, what I want to point out is all of those, first of all, involve people devoting considerable effort to, you know, getting certain chemical reactions to happen. And, and secondly, it begs the question of looking for a set of rules or a set of processes which would lead to uh, the, the creation of, of a code. Now, but the nature of codes are is that they have rules that cannot be derived from the laws of physics. So it, it brings us back to, well, all the codes that we've ever seen or ever known the origin of are designed. And so the, the most, the, the default position that matches the evidence that we do have is that DNA was designed. It's the only available explanation. So a person can say, I am looking for a, a set of processes. I am looking for maybe some other laws of physics that we have not discovered that would produce life, but we haven't found them yet. And if a person's willing to say that, I say, congratulations, I'll shake your hand. Uh, you're, you're, you're an honest man. Welcome to the world of agnosticism. <laughs> I, I mean, just, just for my benefit, um, on the subject of the other option you outlined, Perry, what if it did happen by chance? And you, and you say, well, that's not a scientific pursuit to even say that. I mean, what, what, what are the probabilities involved? Um, because I've heard somewhere statistics involved with, with the kind of the, prob the probabilistic calculation of, of the DNA molecule kind of self-assembling. I, I know that you're saying, Perry, uh, Peter, that that's not really the way that there would have to be sort of precursors to it, etc. But, but I mean, is there any kind of probability statement out there about how, how likely it is for it to have happened coincidentally in that sense? I mean, either of you can answer this. Well, the, the, about, sim but Perry, the simplest yeah. probability calculation would be you say, okay, if I have a string of DNA and it's got so many base pairs in it, which human DNA has um, three billion base pairs, how many possible combinations of base pairs are there? Well, it's four to the power of the number of base pairs. Okay. So let's take the simplest known organism, which is nanoarchium, which has 500,000, has 480,000 base pairs. Um, the number of combinations of the simplest known organism, the number of combinations of letters in that code, uh, when you do the math, is 2 to the power of, uh, is 10 to the power of 250,000. 
So there's that many possible combinations of, of information, and it contains a specific combination that builds a specific cell. I mean, the number you've just mentioned there is is quite literally an astronomically huge number. It's, it's beyond astronomic. Yeah. It, I mean, it's also irrelevant. Probability. <laughs> I, I, this is an exercise in complete futility. It, 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 well, yeah, that, that calculation is also an exercise in complete futility. Why, why does that not apply, that calculation? I mean, that calculation well, well, on the surface well, looks like the, the, the chances of the first sort of simplest organism springing into being is so completely out there in terms yeah. of the probability of it happening that it's it's not even you know it's it's effectively zero it's, it's, the reason it doesn't apply is because no one's arguing that that happened um i mean everyone recognizes that there has to be some precursor to the to the biological cell um there has there has to be some combination uh, of a self-replicating molecule in the right environment um, where it can actually draw on nutrients and create copies of itself. We, we all recognize that has to be something much, much simpler. Uh, Peter, how, do, how would you calculate the probability of that occurring? We have absolutely no way to calculate the probability of that occurring because we don't know the environment. We've never seen any similar planets in the, in the same condition. We have absolutely no idea what the probability of it happening is and it's futile even to speculate right now until we have a pathway that we're, we're can generate a self-replicating molecule. Which is why I say that that theory at this point in time does not even merit the label of scientific at all because of what you just said. You're saying that because we can't attach a probability to life arising, therefore it therefore that's not scientific. It's not scientific to explore possible chemical pathways to see how it could happen. Well, it's 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 within the scientific method to do experiments and explore, yeah. but it is not it it is not a scientific statement or a scientific hypothesis to say that it did. If the question itself is so nebulous that you can't even attach probabilities to it, well, the, the, it's, the, 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 it's the, the, not the, even in kindergarten yet. Well, hold on, hold on. I mean, when when we say attach probabilities, what I say is uh, is, is to calculate probabilities. Um, I mean, we don't know how to calculate the probabilities. There are lots of things we don't know how to calculate the probabilities of. That doesn't mean it's it, that doesn't mean it's futile to investigate them. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to calculate the probability of an earthquake in San Francisco next week. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that geophysics is, is, is shouldn't be investigating uh, volcanology and things. Well, but doesn't, you, doesn't make you it can, You can calculate a probability of an earthquake happening in San Francisco next week. There's 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 people with mountains of data, and they could tell you, you know, there's a point zero zero one percent chance that it will happen. Uh, they can, they can and, and within a, some certain window of of an upper or lower limit, they're right. The, 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 I mean, no one can predict what the chances are of an earthquake next week in San Francisco. No, no, no one knows whether there'll be an earthquake next week there. Nobody knows, but they can assign a probability to it very easily based on past history. It's, it's not a probability that anyone's going to pay any attention to, though, is it? They're not going to act on it. Well, I'm not. I'm. I'm not arguing whether people are going to pay attention to it. I'm just arguing whether you can reasonably, mathematically assign a probability to that, and you can. Right, but okay. I mean, there, it's, is, it's, there is a very reasonable calculation that you can make. What I'm saying is you can make no such calculation, just as you said, with the origin of life, because nobody even has a framework for it. 
So really, the origin of life field is not making any scientifically testable predictions at this point after 50 years of science. I, I really don't get. I really don't get this argument. What you're saying is that because we can't calculate the probability of life arising, therefore it's futile to investigate it. No, I, oh, no, I didn't say that. That's what it sounded like. No, it's not. No, it's not futile to investigate. You can investigate it all you want. You you just can't take any current hypothesis about it and give it the honor of calling it a scientific theory. Because no, it's no. No, there's no scientific theory uh, that we have. We haven't discovered it yet. We're looking for it. That's what we're looking but, for. But isn't your faith in something that may well not exist, Peter? I mean, isn't isn't Perry's point that he he doesn't think this thing does exist that you're that well, people are the, searching? The thing for. is that the whole point of the scientific method is that it excludes supernatural phenomena. No, um, it doesn't. I'm sorry. It, it is unable to investigate. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Phenomenon. I'm sorry. It is a fundamental basis of all science that it excludes the supernatural. It is purely concerned with natural means. It's purely concerned with what is testable. You cannot test the supernatural. It is, it is not subject but to physical laws. But doesn't this then drag us into the area of the fact that you have a presupposition, Peter, which puts out of court from the very beginning Perry's. Um, conclusion that it is designed because that has an imp- a supernatural it, implication. It, it, no, it, no it, I, I do not reject the possibility that something is designed. What I do reject is Perry's claim that he has evidence for it on the basis that it's a code. I mean, it, the basis that it's a code, all he's saying is that because all human codes were created by humans, therefore something that looks like a code in nature must have been created by something like a human. Well, that it doesn't just, look like a code. That, 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 just, that just doesn't follow. No, but But isn't the fact that the only way, the only plausible explanation, as far as Perry's concerned, is a supernatural intelligence. Why is it the only plausible explanation? Because, as far as he's concerned, the others have all been ruled out. The other four explanations that, that, I, I, that I, could... are you ruling out a natural explanation, Perry? No, I'm just observing that nobody's nobody has one. So, so, I mean, basically, this is the age-old argument. Here's something complicated that we don't understand, therefore God did it. Is that what you're arguing, Perry? We don't understand this, therefore God did it. Well, I'm saying we do understand this, therefore God did it. We do understand codes. We do understand redundancy. We do understand layers of information. We, we, we do understand how information is encoded and decoded. And everything we know about it indicates a design, which is conception before embodiment. The rules of the genetic code had to be in place before the genetic code could be written or read. We know that about information. Information is immaterial. I mean, you you give the analogy on um, your website of, of language, you know, words on a page. Um, yep. that those would not make any sense to someone unless there were some rules in place, first of all, about what it means when those letters are put together in certain combinations. Right. And, there and has to be agreement between the sender and the receiver, and the agreement precedes the transmission of the message. And the agreement is an immaterial thing. So that's why, that's why my argument that, that, that the genetic code had to exist conceptually before it existed physically, 
because that's how information is. It's the nature of information. Information is, is, is the, a is, is separate the entity from matter and energy. Is the nature of all human codes and information systems, but we're talking here about a biological system. This is, this is outside human construction. When you, t- when you take an analogy, it, the, analogies are great. They're great for explaining things to people uh, when they come across something they perhaps haven't come across before. So you can take something relatively straightforward like the English written language uh, and you can express to people that you can put uh, letters together in combinations to form words and for, w- words form messages and sentences and you can transmit those. And DNA is similar in the sense that it um, has information content. You put small bits together to create big your bits and they, they go on to build something else. And um, I think using an analogy in that way is is, is fine uh, for for teaching someone about uh, the basics of DNA. Um, but you have to be very careful when you start arguing on the basis of an analogy. The English, the written English language and DNA are, are completely different and distinct things. They have different characteristics as well as similar characteristics. And when you start arguing on the basis of one being similar to another, you're in danger of extrapolating um, uh, 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 your analogy, of stretching it too far, essentially. Now, there, there, there are lots of differences between uh, written language and, and and DNA, for example. Um, Perry has actually mentioned one himself, the level of redundancy. If you take the word fox, F-O-X, and, and you change the last letter to say Q, it becomes a meaningless word. It's not quite like that with DNA. Um, DNA, um, you can quite often change one or two of the letters and you get the same building block coming out. Um, so there's a certain redundancy built in there from the start. Even if you do change the building block, very often it can do a similar function. Um, it's a bit like um, a, a better analogy. A better analogy might be something like the blueprints for a house. Um, DNA would be like the blueprint. It tells you what's, what dimensions the walls are, the shape of the roof, the con- perhaps the construction materials. Now, if you vary some of the dimensions, um, OK, it won't be the same house, but you'll still get a house. Something will, functional will still be built. And if you have... A strong enough selection criteria, uh, throwing away all the ones that fall down and keeping all the ones that get bigger and better and stronger, well, maybe one day you'll have a cathedral instead of a house. Um, so so you, uh, that would be a closer analogy, okay. I would say. Now, why do you believe that it's, it's not an analogy, what you're speaking of here, Perry? Well, I, I'm going to quote Hubert Yaki, who is the foremost living um, expert on on bioinformation systems. He has a wonderful book called Information Theory Evolution and the Origin of Life, published by Cambridge University Press. And in his book, he says, information, transcription, translation, code, redundancy, synonymous, messenger, editing, and proofreading are all appropriate terms in biology. They take their meaning from Claude Shannon and are not synonyms, metaphors, or analogies. When we say that DNA is a code, it is a code. It's not like a code. It is, by definition, a code. Okay? Now, if you say DNA is a language, that, that's getting close, or is like human language. Well, now, 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 we're, now we're talking metaphorically, but in the strict engineering sense, DNA is... A communication system. Okay, and and that is by definition what it is, and fr- 
by that, you know, you say you cannot get a communications system without rules being in place in the first place. You can't yes. sort of, it doesn't kind of, a communication doesn't come in, system come into being without it having some rules the, which, which will the, define this, how the, it communicates. This argument, is going, this, this, communication. This, this argument is going round and round in circles. One of the, one of the possibilities that you rejected was that was, you said we needed a new law of physics in order for information to be created. Can you explain that more? Well, I'm, I'm very open to that. That would, that would be a productive... Why do, we, why do we need a new law of physics? Because the current laws of physics do not define the arbitrary nature of codes. Why do they prohibit the creation of self-replicating molecule? They don't, they don't prohibit... They don't, they don't prohibit at all. They are, they are simply not sufficient. Why are they not sufficient? Because they don't contain the laws of the genetic code. Well, well hold on, hold on. If, 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 if physics does not forbid the creation of a self-replicating molecule... Well, it doesn't forbid it. It just doesn't, it, it just doesn't facilitate it. Well, you don't know that. You, you don't know what the pathway... You don't know what the set of steps was that led to the first replicating molecule. How can you say it doesn't facilitate it? Well, I, I have to turn that around. You don't know what the steps are, so why do you know that it happened? I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm open but skeptical. I'm saying, Peter, show me. It, it's interesting to me, but... I mean, there, there are all kinds of things occurring to me as we've had this conversation for you, Peter, because you don't believe that design is is allowed in the scientific method anyway. I don't, think, I don't uh, think it's a useful explanation. Well, I mean, from and from Perry's point of view, he sees it as it, it, it it's always used to explain things. So why can't it be used in this case to to explain this? It, it seems a much better explanation because, on Perry's account than than because a naturalistic soon, explanation. As soon as you say it was just created, designed by God or whatever, the science stops. Why bother investigating how it got there if God just put it there? Perry, d does this kind of you know just call a a, a blank on bother, the bother of of actually pursuing scientific method if if we do at some point say it must have been designed? No, here, here's what it does. It recognizes and acknowledges the tension between the philosophical and the scientific and between the metaphysical and the scientific. And each needs the other. Science requires a set of presuppositions that are philosophical, not scientific, in order to operate. This is just a physical manifestation of that same phenomenon, which is that Science, science cannot explain, it can only discover, but it has, there is a limit to its purview. We are going to have to start to draw things to a close. So let me just ask you, gents, it's been a fascinating discussion, but to, to just have a 30-second, um, you know, summing up to be ready in your mind, as I uh, invite the listener, wherever you are listening, to um, feel free to get in touch on the back of today's discussion. I mean, obviously, this was quite high-ranging. Um, at times, I was kind of having to, you know, sort of keep my head above water sometimes with, with some of the, the level of the science here. But, but fascinating stuff. And um, as I say, I wonder whether it, it, some of it does boil down to presuppositions about what's allowed and what's not as, as in terms of an explanation. Um, do get your comments into me if, you, if you'd like to. Um, I'm 
be happy to read them out next week and pass them on to our guests if I if I see that they're relevant. Um, You can email unbelievable at premier.org.uk and you can get in touch by phone. Uh, Do call 08456 52 52 52 and select option 5. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Don't forget that this programme is available as a podcast now at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable do tell your friends about it and if it is a subject that um, you know really pushes your buttons and gets you interested and i've got plenty of friends for whom th- this is a really key issue and and feel that like perry that that this is a killer blow as far as the the, the evidence for god um do email it on to someone you know let them know about unbelievable and uh, hey get hold of the podcast too that way you won't miss an episode premier.org.uk forward slash Unbelievable. Okay, I'm just going to give you guys a chance to sum up now. Um, obviously, I don't want to give anyone the last word uh, per se, but but let's just start with you, Peter, and just your, your summing up of, of how you feel about today's discussion. Okay, I mean, it's, it's an interesting discussion. Um, um, and I, I certainly learned some things that I didn't know before I arrived here this afternoon. Um, I, I certainly didn't know there was uh, a CD's worth of information in every cell of my body. Um, but... Um, What I would say to listeners of this program is there is no conflict between science and faith. Um, Science has nothing to say about the existence or non-existence of God. Um, All science does is try to reproduce uh, experiments um, to try and discover what's going on in nature, to find out how things happened naturally. Um, At the moment, there are things we don't understand uh, that's why we still employ lots of scientists. If we knew everything, we could sack them all. They could sack me. Um, but um, we don't. Uh, in particular, we don't know how uh, life arose. Um, even the earliest forms of life that we know about were extremely complex. We know they couldn't have arisen like that spontaneously. There must have been some succession of events which took place before that, and remember we're talking about four and a half billion years ago, it's a very difficult thing to speculate upon. Uh, We don't know exactly how those early self-replicating molecules arose. Um, I don't believe, as Perry states, that it requires any new physics at all. Um, I don't see any reason at all why existing chemical pathways uh, or or known chemical processes uh, couldn't have led to some form of self-replicating molecule. We don't know what it is. We keep looking. But the point at which we say God did it, the science stops. Perry, your final thoughts. Um, uh, when, When Peter says there's no conflict between science and faith, I entirely agree. And I will go further and I will say that, that, that the enterprise of science requires faith in an underlying order. Now, the word faith is, is a very dicey word there because that's fighting words to some people. But, but let's, let's use a different word. A, the, the enterprise of science requires a presupposition, which you cannot ever prove in advance, that there is an underlying order to things. And uh, that presupposition can never be proven. It's only rewarded, it's only rewarded by uh, investigation and successful science experiments. Now, what I am proposing here is that there is an even higher level of order 
in the world of things that are driven by information, it's only explainable as originating by something very intelligent, and that a presupposition of that intelligence is the most parsimonious explanation for it and leads us to assume that it's sophisticated, that it's elegant, that it does its job very well, and it explains why it's so similar in so many ways to things that humans design. So science and faith are not at all incompatible. Each needs the other. Faith needs science in order to understand the works of God, and science needs faith in order to have a presupposition in the first place that the universe is an orderly place that follows rules and is orderly. Well, there will be so much to say, more to say, I'm sure, and um, perhaps we can get you gents back another time. Uh, But uh, for now, thank you both for joining me, um, and um, we uh, have really enjoyed the discussion that we've had. Uh, I hope those listening have as well. Um, Thank you again to my guest, Perry Marshall. You can find his arguments in full at cosmicfingerprints.com. Um, Peter, is there somewhere you'd like to direct people if they want the alternative, if you like? I like to be as fair as possible in these, in um, these matters. Yes, I mean, I, 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 there's a very good website called Christians in Science. Um, uh, just Google it. I can't remember the exact URL. Christians in Science, uh, as far as you're concerned, they, they would not agree on, on the intelligent design aspect of, of, of these sorts of... No, they would not. No. Well, thank you very much both for being with me, and uh, I hope you can join me again next week here on Unbelievable. Let me tell you what's coming up. Do join me as I'm joined by a Mormon and a Christian. Our Mormon is Robert Millett, professor at Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City. Greg Johnson is a Baptist pastor out there, and he's been encouraging dialogue and debate between Mormons and Christians. We'll be hearing them speaking together about what unites and what divides Christians and Mormons on next week's program. It's going to be really interesting. Do join me for that between 2.30 and 4, as well as online at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable have a great week and i'll see you next time